You are listening to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, November 2nd. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, redrawing of congressional maps is still in the very early stages. But one unofficial draft would put the university town of Davis in the district of Congressman Doug LaMalfa. In Sacramento, new arrivals from Afghanistan get a visit from Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra. And a California condor manages the first known case of asexual reproduction in the breed. After regional news and weather, Gary Zimmerman and Mark Cuniberti offer their takes on the economy. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A Southern California judge has ruled in favor of pharmaceutical companies after local governments sued them for their role in the opioid epidemic. Los Angeles, Orange, and Santa Clara counties and the city of Oakland were seeking billions of dollars, arguing that drug makers had misled both doctors and patients by downplaying the risks of opioids. But in a tentative ruling yesterday, Orange County Superior Court Judge Peter Wilson said the local governments had failed to prove the companies were using deceptive marketing practices to increase unnecessary opioid prescriptions. The plaintiffs say they plan to appeal the ruling. The federal government says nearly half a million Americans have died from opioid abuse since 2001. In the wake of the Taliban seizure of power in Afghanistan, Sacramento is struggling with an influx of refugees from the country. Yesterday, a high-ranking Biden administration official returned home to better understand the situation. Here's KQED's Katie Orr with more. U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra, a Sacramento native, spoke with refugees at the local branch of the International Rescue Committee. He heard about the struggles of finding affordable housing, getting around without a car, and enrolling children in school. Becerra acknowledged refugees are coming into an already stressed system. It is tough for Americans to find housing in some of these localities. It is tough for Americans to navigate some of the system. And so We have to work with the Afghan families so they recognize our realities. The large Afghan community in Sacramento draws refugees to the area. The local IRC estimates they'll help resettle about 2,000 people here this year. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. The state's Independent Redistricting Commission is in the middle of a map-drawing marathon for legislative districts with new borders. And the recently released drafts show big shifts in who Northern California might send to Congress. CAP Radio's politics reporter Nicole Nixon has more. Using fresh census data, state, local, and federal political maps are redrawn every 10 years to account for population changes over the past decade and even out representation. The maps by the nonpartisan commission are by no means final, but they show some potentially big shakeups in Northern California's congressional districts. For Democratic redistricting expert Paul Mitchell, the biggest head-scratcher is the district currently held by Republican Congressman Doug LaMalfa. In the latest draft, it stretches from the northeast along the Oregon border into the college town of Davis. There's going to be a lot of, you know, lefty, vegetarian, latte-drinking Davisites uh, calling into the commission, I think to tell them that they do not want to be put into that district. The unofficial draft also shows the Arden-Carmichael area being combined with Roseville, Rockland, and Folsom into a potentially competitive swing district that could affect this historically Republican seat. 
Mitchell says the maps will likely undergo some significant changes before the final drafts are adopted by the end of the year. For the California Report, I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. As leaders from across the globe meet at the UN Climate Change Conference in Scotland, a group of representatives from California is speaking out about the need for action. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, who chairs C40, a climate coalition of 97 cities, says more than a thousand cities from across the globe have pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2050. It's the equivalent of 733 million global citizens taking 1.5 gigatons of carbon out of this Earth's atmosphere. And if you wanted to rank that, that's like taking a country that would be somewhere between the fifth and fourth most populous countries in the world and eliminating their carbon because of this pledge. Along with the actions of cities and countries, Garcetti also commended young people for helping lead the fight against climate change, even during a time of so much uncertainty like during the pandemic. Those students who had to be at home in the best years of their life, who missed graduations and proms, who missed those moments that were most important. And I want to thank the youth leaders who have fueled this moment and who have fueled this movement as well. The Los Angeles mayor says two-thirds of C40 cities have set or met emission targets that are equal to or exceed the targets outlined in the Paris Climate Agreement. Support for the California report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at schmidtfutures.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. Nature, it constantly surprises, like this story. Geneticists at the San Diego Zoo have revealed the first ever case of condor reproduction by just a single parent. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has the details. Testing revealed two young condors reared by two separate mothers had only one parent. Their eggs were not fertilized by male sperm. Actor Jeff Goldblum talked about asexual dinosaur reproduction in the 1993 movie Jurassic Park. I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. It hit us in the face. We weren't looking for it. We didn't expect it. San Diego Zoo geneticist Oliver Ryder says genetic testing of the captive and wild populations of California condors is a regular occurrence as researchers work to maintain genetic diversity. The species almost went extinct 30 years ago. Ryder says the genomes of the mothers and offspring are the same, confirming the findings. It happened twice when the population was small. Will it happen again when the population gets bigger? I think that's an important question. These are the first known cases of reproduction without fertilization in California condors, something called parthenogenesis. And it's the first time genetic testing has confirmed the phenomenon. Zoo researcher Cynthia Steiner says the development is also unique because there were fertile males present, but asexual reproduction happened anyway. Knowing that this is not like a a random individual we found, this is two individuals from two separate families so uh, that were able to uh, be generated using proteinogenesis, we might think that this is not as uncommon as we, we, we thought before. The California condor is the largest flying bird in the world with wingspans that can reach nine feet. The population shrank to 22 birds in the 1980s. There are now more than 500 living condors, both in captivity and flying free. 
For the California Report, I'm Eric Anderson in San Diego. And that is the California Report for Tuesday, November 2nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez, and wherever you are in the Golden State or beyond, have a great day. In regional news, from today's Sacramento Bee, Pacific Gas and Electric says the Dixie Fire will cost the utility at least $1.15 billion and has triggered a federal investigation. Already under investigation by CAL FIRE in connection with the second largest wildfire in the state's history, PG&E said in a regulatory filing Monday that it has received a subpoena from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Sacramento over its potential role in the Dixie Megafire. The Dixie Fire burned 963,309 acres over a three-month span and destroyed much of the small Plumas County community of Greenville. PG&E's disclosure to the Securities and Exchange Commission comes as other legal woes pile on. The Shasta County District Attorney has filed criminal charges over last year's Zog Fire, which killed four people in a rural area west of Redding. PG&E also is under indictment in connection with the 2019 Kincaid Fire in Sonoma County. PG&E has previously disclosed that civil damages from the Kincaid Fire could reach $600 million or more. Now it's saying that damages from the Dixie Fire could hit more than $1 billion, and that figure is in the lower end of the range of their calculations, according to the SEC filing. The fire destroyed more than 1,300 homes and other buildings across the northern Sierra. The Union of Grass Valley reports today that a local group has come to the rescue of the previously canceled Nevada County toy run. There's a small group of us that came together to do our own toy run in tradition with what's been happening for the last 29 years, said Chelsea Bueller, one of the event's organizers. The Nevada County Food and Toy Run's longtime organizer, Tom Stacer, said last month that the event was over. Since 1991, motorcyclists had gathered during the yearly holiday event to ride through Nevada City and Grass Valley and deliver food and toy donations to benefit families in need. Bueller said she, her children, and other relatives had volunteered with the toy run in the past and that she had been watching it every year for as long as she can remember. Bueller said she and three other organizers are planning the toy run for the second Saturday of December. This year, that's December 11th, the same day the event has traditionally been held in the past. Bueller said that this year's route is planned to begin at the Rood Center and end at the Nevada County Fairgrounds. The Sacramento Bee also reports on its website today that ski and snowboard season at Sierra at Tahoe likely won't begin until early 2022 due to the damage caused by the Caldor Fire. The resort made the announcement in a Monday email newsletter. The late-summer Caldor Fire, which burned its way along Highway 50 into the Lake Tahoe Basin, damaged key infrastructure and created tree hazards, rendering some areas of Sierra at Tahoe inaccessible, according to the resort's website. The resort said the Grandview Express, one of its two main lifts, had its haul rope damaged during the fire, and a replacement cable is being produced in Switzerland. Sierra at Tahoe said global supply chain and shipping issues have created further uncertainty. The Sierra Nevada received a blanket of snow in late October when powerful storms passed through Northern California. Palisades Tahoe kicked off its season weeks early as a result, opening its slopes just before Halloween. According to organizer Lorraine Reich, 
a community oversight task force that has been studying the policies and practices of Nevada County law enforcement will report its findings and make recommendations at a meeting Friday at 6 p.m. at the Madeline Helling Library. The task force will present its findings in person in the library community room. The meeting can also be accessed by a Zoom link available on Reich's Facebook page. The self-appointed oversight task force was created in the wake of the August 9, 2020 protest in downtown Nevada City. In the weather, mild temperatures in our region tonight and Wednesday, rain expected early Thursday morning, more significant rainfall is expected from Sunday into next week, with a mix of rain and snow in the high country. Tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 53 degrees. Wednesday, sunny with a high of 68 and a low of 53. In Truckee tonight, clear with a low of 31. Wednesday in Truckee, sunny with a high of 63 and a low of 42. In Sacramento, partly cloudy tonight with a low of 50. Wednesday in Sacramento, morning clouds giving way to sun in the afternoon with a high of 71 and a low of 57. Next up, in his talk with KVMR's Paul Emery, economist Gary Zimmerman looks back at the third quarter economic numbers and forward to Wednesday's meeting of the Federal Reserve. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Well, Kerry, what happened uh, to GDP in, in the third quarter of uh, 2021? The data that I've seen that was released last week indicated the economy was only growing at a 2% annual rate. Paul, the um, preliminary or advanced third quarter GDP number that was published last week was the, the first of several estimates for the third quarter um, that we'll get from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Um, you know, and, and GDP will re- be revised in the coming months as more data and more complete data are available that helps them calculate a more accurate estimate of real or inflation adjusted output for the economy. And as you indicated, Paul, that preliminary GDP number showed that the economy had slowed dramatically from expanding at more than a, or about a 6% annual rate in the second quarter of the year, or I'm sorry, in the second quarter of the year and the first half of the year. Um, it fell to, down to only 2% annual rate in the third quarter. So it uh, was a pretty <laughs> rapid or noticeable decline in growth rates. Okay, putting this in perspective, how fast should the economy be growing over time? I mean, 6% sounds high, and just how low is 2%? This is what we had. Do you think the slower growth rate suggests we should be worried about the economy slipping back into another recession? Paul, the 6% growth rate is extremely high for the U.S. economy and was not expected to continue as it mostly reflects the fact that the economy had still been rebounding rapidly from the very deep 2020 COVID recession. Still many forecasts for the third quarter were expecting growth at close to 3%, you know, 2.7, 2.8% annual growth rate. You know, we might also look at, you know, for a perspective, the Fed policymakers' estimates of the growth rate for the economy in the long run with an 
appropriate monetary policy with full employment and about a 2% inflation rate. You know, their long-run growth estimate is, you know, 1.8 to 2% annual rate. So essentially the same uh, ballpark as the preliminary third quarter growth rate of 2%. So the, you know, the third quarter GDP growth rate was slower and certainly lower than expected, but not terrible. You know, si- similar to you know, what we might get long run. Gary, since you brought up inflation, let me ask, growth of the economy slowed, yet the inflation numbers are running about double the Fed's inflation goal. Uh, what's happening here? Yes, the Fed's preferred overall inflation measure, the personal expenditure price index, continues to run well above the Fed's 2% inflation goal. As of September, this measure of inflation was rising at a 4.4% annual rate over the prior 12 months. It take one a longer period to get a, a you know, because there's a lot of variability in the month-to-month numbers. Um, you know, what's going on here? We've got courses like supply shortages, rising wages and labor costs, higher energy prices, you know, also in there. And all of these have worked to at least temporarily drive up the overall inflation index. Um, Still, as of the September 22nd um, projections from the Fed policymakers, they were expecting that while the 2021 inflation rate you know, is is in the same ballpark as that 4.4 number. They were expecting 2021 inflation um, to be about 4.2%. So, you know, the expected PCE inflation rate that they see for 20. Uh, 2022 and 2023, you know, drops down to about 2.2%. So it's, you know, much closer to the Fed's 2% inflation goal. Um, So, you know, they're looking at this, uh, at least they were in September, as a a temporary spike in inflation. So bottom line is the economy is still expanding. That's positive. The expected temporary supply chain disruptions associated with COVID and production processes have likely contributed at least to a temporary spike in inflation rather uh, than the start of a permanent surge in inflation, inflation expectations. Well, lots of information, Gary. (laughs) Thank you so much for filling our heads with all this really important (laughs) stuff. A lot of things to think about. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Paul. Thank you. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. We know economic inflation has started to erode our purchasing power. Today, Mark Cuniberti ponders the threat of hyperinflation. Is a cycle of disaster brewing for the United States? Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Inflation is a word understood by all. Its effects on households, although somewhat tame in recent decades, is now ravaging balance sheets both on individuals and companies alike. I have warned that inflation was coming multiple times here in Money Matters with 11 articles and about five shows in the last 14 months, but I have never used the H word, which is hyperinflation. We all know inflation is rising prices and there could be many causes. Monetary inflation is the most insidious and the most common. Monetary inflation is simply an increase in the money supply or printing more dollars. For a conceptual moment of monetary inflation, just think Mexican peso. 
Other types of inflation are demand inflation, which is more people want whatever it is that is rising in price for whatever the reason. There is supply-side inflation, which is a shortage of something. Regulatory inflation is a tax or levy added by a governing body, making the good or service more expensive. There are other types of obscure inflation, but whatever causes it, the symptom is a rise in general prices over time. How much and how fast prices rise has a lot to do with what we call inflation expectations. To conceptualize inflation expectations, just think back to the housing bubble when people scurried to buy a home in fear of quickly rising prices. During the housing bubble, when prices were rising fast and furiously, the fact that homeowners knew and expected a fast increase in prices caused a rush-to-buy mindset to lock in a price before they went even higher. This rush-to-buy was a self-fulfilling prophecy. The faster prices rose, the faster people bought. This is a perfect example of inflation expectations. Although inflation could steadily and seriously erode a family's purchasing power and subsequently cause an increase in the homeless and the poor, hyperinflation is devastated to the vast majority of consumers, businesses, and to the economy itself. When hyperinflation occurs, it is always monetary inflation that causes it, and the speed of which prices increase can be astounding. History is rife with examples of hyperinflation. Think Mexico, Argentina, Venezuela, Germany in the early 1900s, and Zimbabwe's hyperinflation starting in 2007. That country's inflation was estimated at 79.6 billion percent month over month and 89.7 sextillion percent year on year in mid-November of 2008. Although I have forecasted the coming of significant inflation in many articles over the past year, I've never mentioned a hyperinflationary threat here in the U.S. Surprisingly enough, however, more than a few notables have warned that a hyperinflationary threat is brewing in the United States. Twitter Chief Executive Officer Jack Dorsey and well-known market analyst Mark Faber, among others, have spelled out the reasons they believe a hyperinflationary event may be coming. They believe massive government bailouts, stimulus, and deficit spending will not only result in rising prices, which is what we are seeing now, but quickly turn into the exponential price explosion that is hyperinflation. Specifically, they point to the $5 trillion or so dollars spent in the last year for COVID relief, coupled with the massive deficit spending the government has undertaken since the late 1990s. With more spending programs in government debate as we speak, the amount of money entering the economy, and that has entered it in recent decades, has already baked it into the cake, or so they believe. Hyperinflation is a very serious event. It can quickly force millions into poverty, empty store shelves, and destroy businesses. It is also very difficult to eradicate, and the measures to do so also wreak havoc on an economy and its people. In the case of hyperinflation, the cure is almost as bad as the disease. Measures to deal with hyperinflation are the same for measured inflation, but on a much more drastic scale. The government has to stop spending. Social programs must be eliminated or scaled back. Interest rates must rise a lot and quickly, and fiscal restraint by the government must be practiced on all levels. If that occurs, the world will change as you know it. Should hyperinflation indeed be in our future, so will be untold misery for all. That's it for today's Money Matters. Views expressed in my opinions only and do not necessarily reflect those of this station as staff members or underwriters. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My email is news at moneymanagementradio.com. My name is Mark Kuhnberg. That's our newscast. 
Coming up next at 6.30, an all-new episode of Educationally Speaking. Scott W. Lay hosts an action-packed roundtable about the historical significance of one of Nevada County's jewels, the newly restored covered bridge at Bridgeport. And at 7 p.m., Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman reports on the United Nations Climate Summit now going on in Glasgow. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. At our website, kvmr.org, you can find stories you may have missed and expanded versions of many of our interviews. And you can listen to the KVMR Evening News wherever you get your podcasts. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Have a wonderful evening.